everyone. It's lovely to see you all again this evening. Wasn't it surprising arriving in the light this evening? An innovation for these lectures. Um, this evening, Martin hardly needs any introduction. Um, many of you will know him as he's a member of the congregation of St. Mary and St. John's. And if you don't know him from there, you may know him from Deanery Synod, where he is lay chair. Um, and he's going to talk to us about ancient Israel this evening. I must say, uh, I've been looking forward to this lecture as much as to any of the others in the series, um, because I'm hoping to learn a lot that I don't know. Um, special welcome to any of you who, for who this is the first lecture, and perhaps if you come from Church Elder two represented here, you're very welcome this evening. So without more ado, Martin, I'll hand over to you. <coughs> Thank you, John. And uh, my thanks, John, for inviting me to give this talk and to you for coming. I've got a handout to uh, <laughs> giving some uh, background information so I, I, um, I won't need to rehearse it during the uh, during the talk. Um, I don't know whether my uh, rehearsal times will turn out to be realistic with these slides, but at any, at any rate I will stop at uh, nine o'clock and um, even if I've had to leave some, even I have to leave the last bit out, where Israel's getting a bit less ancient, and uh, hope for Hope for lots of questions, objections, etc. Um, um, never mind. Um, uh, the the title we have is uh, is the Bible true? Uh, that was the. Well, it's been, been advertised, but as you all um, gather, uh, it's only a, a rather restricted portion of that question that I'm actually addressing. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, Adam and Eve, or Darwin and evolution, or indeed anything in the New Testament. I uh, did want to just briefly mention Edmund London's little, little poem about, about divine providence, as it were, uh, which I think does have a certain connection with some of the attitudes taken in the, taken in the Bible itself. Um, but if you asked, uh, is what he says true? Of course, it wouldn't be something that you could easily uh, prove or disprove by uh, looking at objects or making scientific, scientific experiments. Uh, so th there is another um, dimension to the question of the truth of the Bible, um, apart from what we can, what rather little we can actually ascertain by um, analysing the text and digging things up. <clears throat> well, so we're not we're not talking about um, Adam and Eve, and we're not talking about the New Testament. So we, we are talking about the, what we call, what we in the Church of England call the Old Testament and the Apocrypha, 
is slightly different from what our um, Catholic and Jewish colleagues uh, think of. But uh, between them, uh, those, uh, those documents uh, take us down to about um, 100 BC. I mean, all, more or less all dates are BC, I'll say it's not. Um, and uh, when, when they finish, we have the histories of Josephus on which we can uh, fall back for the next 150 odd years. Well, when we talk about the battle for ancient Israel, uh, there is an extremely serious and, and uh, politically live <coughs> contention going on, uh, on which um, predominant Jewish opinion, and I think predominant Christian opinion, takes the view that the ancient kingdom of Israel is still there uh, in its magnificent relics. I mean, that particular relic that I've put up there isn't, isn't all that magnificent. It's the Siloam inscription which records the, uh, the point where two groups of people who were digging converged. And it seems these, these are the people digging the uh, Siloam water conduit, the conduit from uh, the spring in Jerusalem to the temple area. Um, um, it's left ahead, but um, I did c come across a website in which a uh, Muslim contributor said that uh, not even a teaspoon from ancient Israel has ever been recovered. And I wanted to um, uh, look at that point of view as well. I put on the handout this particular quotation from Israel Finkelstein, who is the uh, principal figure in Israeli archaeology. He pops up in all the television programs. Uh, and the restricted time in which he thinks that, that uh, Jerusalem was um, fully populated and occupied uh, does seem to me to be a very important consideration in these matters. His solution uh, is to, uh, what he would like to do, is conduct more excavations on the Temple Mount but it is often said that trying to excavate on the Temple Mount would cause World War III. So it isn't, it isn't going to happen in the foreseeable future. Around the periphery, some excavations are being carried out, and uh, some, just the last few months, quite interestingly, uh, some Roman coins, AD for once, have been found under the um, western wall of the Temple Mount. Uh, Proving conclusively, I think, that the Western Wall was not part of the uh, complex uh, envisaged by Herod the Great. But, however, that's, that's, it's rather unusual to have anything quite so, quite so crisp. Uh, let us um, look back a long way before the time of Herod the Great to about 1350 BC. As you know, a lot of these dates are pretty um, approximate. Um, but this is the first mention of Jerusalem in a letter from uh, the, the mayor of Jerusalem, as it were, to the king of Egypt, uh, saying there's a lot of trouble around. Um, some people are conspiring against you. I'd like you to send me um, a platoon of soldiers. And actually, there's another letter in the same file from somebody saying that that person is conspiring <coughs> in Egypt 
and something ought to be done about it. Um, it may be that now the Egyptians nor we know who was telling the truth, if anyone was. However, uh, so that is, and it's quite a long way back, um, the uh, first reference we have anywhere to Jerusalem. And of course it indicates that at that time, um, the Holy Land, generally tend to call it, was generally under Egyptian control. Um, leaping forward again a bit, I mean, these bits of evidence that people dig up are generally, they're, they're a bit sporadic. And here, here they're occurring at um, more than a century gap. Uh, usually dated to 1205, this is the first mention of Israel in uh, the stela of King Merlepta, uh, describing how he had established peace throughout the, uh, the area from Libya to uh, Lebanon. And uh, one of the people whom he had uh, pacified, or perhaps massacred, uh, he calls Israel. Um, when I said, well, I think it's rather, many of these artifacts are really rather beautiful the way they combine pictures and texts and all that sort of thing, um, and uh, shows you something of the artistic capability that people had at that time. But as I say, I think that's a, it's a rather oblique relationship with the, um, um, with the biblical story. Uh, we don't have any um, confirmation of... Um, Merlepta's activities in the Bible, and indeed the way he puts things uh, hardly uh, fits at all with the biblical record. This one is oh, um, the Treaty of Kadesh, um, following a uh, major battle, um, 1259 is a, a date that someone's worked out, the Egyptians and the Hittites, who were, who were based in what's now uh, eastern Turkey, um, agreed to partition Palestine between them, uh, the Hittites taking the northern part and the Egyptians the southern part. Um, so um, now and then, at intervals of 50 or 100 years, uh, evidence is appearing. Uh, this is the, uh, again, I think rather beautiful uh, inscription in one of the Egyptian temples, uh, recording how King Ramesses III uh, fought a battle and made a settlement with the, the Philistines, or, or the Sea People. This is the first mention of the Philistines or the Palestinians outside the biblical text. So. Here we are, as I say, with a, with a little group of um, bits of external evidence. And uh, we can look at it and see what we make of it. I doubt if we should take it all at face value, because there's always an element of political propaganda, and uh, political propaganda isn't normally the truth. However, there's a picture of events. If it happened like that, what didn't happen? Well, what didn't happen was an Israelite conquest of this territory, which as far as we can see remained under Egyptian control. 
No one who read the Egyptian inscriptions uh, and has not read the Bible would think for a second that the um, entity called Israel, which pops up in one of the inscriptions, was actually the dominant power in the area for um, any of the relevant time. <coughs> so, uh, though there are clearly connections between this Egyptian evidence and the, what, what, the, what the Bible says, it, there is by absolutely no means an exact fit. Uh, as I said, what I call is a sort of oblique relationship. And I certainly don't say you've got to, um, as I'm sure you shouldn't, accept the, the uh, Egyptian or any other uh, non-biblical evidence to which we come um, as if it were clearly true or beyond, um, beyond question. But it just shows, I think, that if you're going to say that the um, Bible story is confirmed, you need to sort of shape the external evidence around that claim. And to do that, you have to go through some arguments which may or may not be valid. But what I think we should uh, discourage while we are in the mode of scientific discussion of the evidence before us is um, you know, banging the table and saying that something has been proved or disproved. That's one of the main things I want to say. <coughs> uh, there's an awful amount of openness to interpretation which the, um, um, which the evidence gives us. Now, I managed to um, tap my... Um, This is actually um, the first time I've tried to do a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation in public. I knew it was going to show. <laughs> However, um, uh, we have the, the fam famous inscription of Merneptah. Um, I'm not clear if ancient Egyptians pronounced like that, but there you go. Um, and since um, it's fairly clear and people have accepted that um, this is a, an undamaged inscription referring to something called Israel. It's also been the case that some other much more damaged inscriptions have been argued to refer to Israel as well from around the same period. <coughs> However, um, the Merneptah inscription is the only certain one, and as I say, most people date it to 1205. Um, another big leap. Um, we are now in the period of the first temple, which was um, approximately an, an approximate date, um, founded by Solomon, or so we read, uh, in 950. Uh, this is uh, a huge temple wall recording the exploits of yes, another Egyptian king called Shishonk. Uh, in the Bible, Shishak, uh, it seems. I mean, people argue about that, but they're probably the same person. Um, who in 921, <coughs> um, according to his own account, set out, he uh, noted that people were doing wrong, and um, that is to say, he claimed to be rectifying abuses, and furthermore, he thought they were doing a lot of tax. So he set out uh, into uh, Palestine to collect the tax. It's, the, the inscription is extremely damaged, and it's very difficult to tell the um, tell the full story, a lot of place names occur, seemingly in a completely nonsensical order. Um, whether his uh, scribes had no idea of where these places actually were, or whether they were um, just reading from a list of you know, tax from a particular place arrived on 
well, on Monday and someone else on Tuesday, and they just they just um, made the list up. Uh, but at any rate, that is um, our next external reference to the um, to the biblical story. And there's a possible reference to some, somewhere called the Heights of David, uh, which we're, and I think that would make it the first reference to David if you accept that. And once again, that's a restoration of a damaged of a damaged text. Uh, otherwise, there is no reference to what we might look for from the Bible, to Israel, to Judah, or to Jerusalem. And uh, from now on, Egypt seems to decline in importance. Though uh, you would think from Shishak's inscription that he thought himself the legitimate king of that area. And let's say he was going around putting things right and um, collecting what was due. Well, now we turn, I think, to what you might think of as the great story that is told in the biblical history books. And uh, what I'm suggesting is that uh, this story divides into um, two strands, a religious story and a political one. Um, <clears throat> Uh, there's a, this was uh, a fairly recent book, I bought a book fairly recently, um, called Religious Diversity in Ancient Israel and Judah. And it's about the, uh, what we can detect now um, about the uh, existence of the official uh, cult of, of the god Yahweh and all the rest. The biblical story, of course, is not uh, that everyone at that time worshipped the right God correctly. Far, far from it. What the biblical story is, is that there was great diversity in religion, but it was a very bad thing. And that there was increasing corruption of the kingdom and the temple as a result. Uh, beside that is set a political story in which uh, Solomon's great kingdom, which had been a terrific great kingdom, uh, so rich that the streets were full of gold and silver was of no account. This kingdom crumbled away and finally split in circumstances where Egypt, the traditional great power of the area, uh, was, was in decline and a new great power arose uh, based in what we would call Iraq. And the rhythm of the story is that, first of all, this new great power was called Assyria and it was resisted by the faithful king Hezekiah um, in, as we think, the year 701. Then, because uh, faith and fidelity declined in Jerusalem, the next Iraqi dynasty, the, the Babylonians, uh, destroyed the temple in, shall we say, 581. Another evolution occurred, and a third dynasty, the Persians, arrived, and they liberated the victims of the Babylonian captivity in 539. But <clears throat> I think this, the idea is this was only a temporary step. As faith recovered, uh, power and the kingdom would return. 
Well, so I wanted to, there's a story about what happened in religion and what happened in politics. And the idea is that what happened in religion determined what happened in politics. God's favour was won and lost and so on. So what did happen in religion? I'm, not, not, I'm going out of time order now. But I, I want first to look at, look at a few things which uh, refer to the ancient Israelite um, cult of Yahweh. Um, the, the silver amulets, which have just, just run away from us, were, are dated to around 600. And uh, they contain the famous biblical phrase, may Yahweh bless you and keep you. Uh, which, so it's interesting that uh, those, those words were, were already being used at that point. <coughs> and we have lots of inscriptions on broken pottery, um, which uses the, refers to the name of Yahweh or to the house of Yahweh. And personal names in huge numbers uh, are Yahweh's, <coughs> In the sense that, I mean, that m most of those names are in that area, they were full sentences saying something like, Yahweh protects me, or he protects my family, or something of that sort. So he was clearly the, the generally accepted as the pr protective God. However, it wasn't that, I mean, when we, when we think of House of Yahweh, we think of the temple in Jerusalem, but uh, other fragments from that same period refer to other houses of Yahweh, here Yahweh of Timah, <coughs> which is in Jordan now. And, of course, it is well known that we have discovered thousands, I think, of these female figurines from the First Temple period, and they are connected to the um, Syrian goddess Astarte, or uh, probably known in um, the Israelite languages as Asherah. <coughs> Uh, and this is the well-known Quintilet Arjun inscription, dated to the 800s, in which says, I bless you in the name of Yahweh and his Asherah. Meaning that the, uh, it would appear that Yahweh is conceived <coughs> not entirely as the transcendent philosophical god of later ages, but as a, a sort of respectable married person. Um, we, are, we should be respectful married persons, so should our God be. That's not, not a particularly um, strange thought, perhaps. What, so what, what we have, uh, it seems, a certain mixture of monotheism. And there have been elements of monotheism in the Middle East, uh, it is well known, since Egypt in around 1400. Perhaps most people didn't see much of a problem about having one God who generally is supreme, generally looks after us with having other um, supernatural beings around who stand in various relations to that one God. I mean, quite likely including his wife. Um, some people say that they've seen in, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls a reference to um, God's mother as well, but um, looks as if um, the wife was somewhere in the picture. Well, uh, here I think we have a big question about meaning, which refers back to the question of have we found any Israelite teaspoons? What exactly, you might say, was their cup of tea? Are we in find it, finding these things, discovering ancient Israel, uh, the society depicted in the Book of Kings, in which there is clear um, domination by the Yahweh um, cult, 
or I'm therefore, because we're finding quite a lot of detail about that society, finding ever so much more than its, than its mere teaspoons, or are we finding just part of the ancient Middle East in which there was um, an element of, of monotheism, an element of religious diversity, and all that kind of thing. And I think that question is, again, one to which I don't think there's a clear and obvious answer. Once again, I think there are all manner of ways in which you can argue things, balance the evidence, interpret them, As at least if you're thinking from a purely scientific point of view, not from a devotional point. I mean, we, we read the Bible devotionally as well. Uh, but it, while we are thinking in, in purely scientific terms, I think it isn't by any means clear um, whether this is something we should call ancient Israel or something which, I say, is just part of the ancient Middle East, on which the story of so-called Israel um, has been imposed by writers of a later time. So from a scientific point of view, I don't think it is easy to be sure of that. Well, I so said that that's as far as I can see the religious story in its outlines, and I believe that most people who study these things would come to roughly that sort of idea as well. Um, that's always a bit difficult to assess. The political story takes us from an era of what you might call local wars, in which comparatively minor. Um, countries, Israel, Syria, Moab, Judah, etc., are engaged in the 800s. Uh, and the two battles at Ramoth Gilead in the Books of Kings, which uh, may be of some interest because of how they turn up in the archaeological record. Then from about the 730s, there is an era of imperial wars in which, uh, first of all, Syria and Israel antagonized Judah, this was the moment giving rise to the famous Emmanuel prophecy, which has, has um, um, been extremely fascinating ever since. And it would appear that the Assyrians rescued Jerusalem from the Syrians and the Israelites. But then an imperial period, you might say, began in which the, the great power, the Iraqis, the Assyrians, uh, wanted to levy taxes over the whole Middle Eastern region. I mean, that wasn't necessarily a scandalous thing to do because the, the arrangement in those days was that the, the bigger and bolder kings collected tribute or kind of tax from the lesser ones and in return they guaranteed a large area of uh, free from warfare where trade could go on, etc. And then it appears that after about 695, after campaigns and sieges and all that kind of thing, an agreement was reached. So that in the 600s, um, there was indeed a period of comparative class and prosperity. Um, we do have a series of monuments and records from around 850, looking back to what, according to the Bible, looks like a period of local wars. This is the Cork monolith. Another very beautiful thing, I think. Notice how the text flows over the portrait of the king. Um, Battle of Karkar in 853, when 12 kings, including Ahab, king of Israel, at the head of 2,000 chariots, 
must have been a fine side, um, turned back the um, Assyrian advance on the, on the coast. And uh, that looks like an important thing, though it isn't mentioned in the Bible at all, perhaps because they didn't really like the idea of Ahab, who wasn't a good guy, uh, winning, an important, uh, winning an important battle. If we dated this, this is, a, this is the, the stealer of Misha. Um, two Kings begins with the story of Misha's rebellion against Israel. And uh, this is uh, Misha's, or appears to be Misha's own account of what happened. It's very long, but uh, just paraphrasing what he says, uh, I am Misha, I liberated Moab, um, is which Israel had oppressed for 40 years all the time of King Omri and half the time of his son. Again, it's one of these oblique relationships in the biblical text because the, um, it's Omri's grandson um, who is um, mentioned in the Book of Kings rather than his son. Um, the the Misha Stephen or Moabite stone is in the Louvre and the story is that it was um, rescued by French archaeologists after some greedy Arabs had smashed it to bits, uh, over, uh, fighting over who, who would get the money for it. Um, and it was reconstructed with the aid of a papier-mâché impression that one of the French archaeologists had conveniently taken before the... I mean, that's an incredibly dodgy story. And, uh, and though it, in the, the, the argument for the authenticity of the thing is that there was no model for that particular ancient script available in the 1860s. Um, but if, the, if even a small one had been available, um, I mean, archaeology is absolutely plagued by looting and forgery. And so I do have my doubts about the papier mache, which has never been published. But of course, it, it's a shining, a shining star of French archaeology. And um, anyway, but, but if, we do take, if we do take it as genuine, then, um, again, it's another, it's another of these documents which has uh, what I've been calling a, a sort of oblique relationship with the um, biblical text. Around the same time, um, with a, a possible reference to the second battle of Ramoth Gilead in 2 Kings 8, I checked that this afternoon, I hope I've got it right, um, it, this seems to refer to a period of local in which the Syrians claim to have uh, killed the kings of Israel. Well, again, this is a question of reconstructing a damaged text. It looks as if they claim to have killed the kings of, of Israel and Judah. And what this, this is really famous, very, you know, really, really made a huge impact in the, um, in the world of Old Testament studies by being um, the first definite reference to the royal house of David from anywhere outside the Bible. And if, again, it probably is genuine, and if it is, uh, then it's, it's a record of, it's some reference to the heroic King David and from not much more than a century after he is supposed to have lived. Once again, of course, there is a, that, that oblique relationship, because uh, if it's the case that um, the King Jehoram and was it Joram and Ahaziah were killed by the Syrians in in a battle somewhere or other, then this conflicts slightly, conflicts quite seriously with the biblical text because um, in two kings they are killed by uh, the rebel Jehu, 
who was commissioned by the prophet Elisha to do the job. Um, Elisha had also commissioned a new king of Syria, who is the possible victor of that um, uh, battle mentioned in the um, in the tell down, as it's called inscription. I was thinking it should be a joke there somewhere about telling down. But, um, this is the black obelisk, um, which is famous for recording the tribute of Jehu to Jehu, son of Omri, and he wasn't the son of Omri in the biblical text, but that could be son meaning descendant or something. Jehu, son of Omri, to the Assyrians, around 735, once again, it wouldn't be particularly surprising if he did pay tribute to the Assyrians, but once again, that's not something mentioned in the, um, in the biblical record. Um, <coughs> well, uh, there we have the uh, story of um, those events around 840. And um, again, making a bit of a leap, we've got the um, events of the late 600s. Uh, as I mentioned, the Assyrians had, had according to the biblical record, uh, been checked in their advance on Jerusalem. But nevertheless, an agreement had been made, and throughout, throughout the 600s, that agreement seems to have held. The Assyrians were the dominant power. The Jerusalemites did pay tribute. <coughs> but, as I said, it seems to be an era of prosperity, and um, it, it fits with the periods of full occupation of Jerusalem that are mentioned in, in uh, Finkelstein's summary of the situation, which, which uh, I mentioned earlier on. Uh, by the time we get to the 620s, the 610s, turbulence breaks out again, though. The, the Babylonian dynasty, who seemed to have been um, low-born military adventurers originally, replaced the Assyrians. And uh, the Egyptians also got back into the act, wanted a piece of the action, and with some success, because one of the uh, Judaite kings, Jehoiakim, uh, was not only put on the throne by the Egyptians, but given his name by them as a sign of... Um, I mean, kings often took a new name when they, when they came to the throne, but in this case, we are told that the, uh, the Egyptians told Jehoiakim not only to do what they said, but they told him what his name was. Um, so there was, once again, there was a uh, uh, battle, conflicting influence, between the, the south and the north. Once again, though, the northern power uh, eventually prevailed. And in 597, the Babylonians deported the leading citizens of Jerusalem, uh, including uh, the king Jehoiachin and uh, the prophet Z priest and prophet Ezekiel. And we get into a period of literary um, composition, uh, including Jeremiah uh, and Ezekiel. And Jeremiah complains of the corruption of the kingdom, and Ezekiel complains of the corruption of the temple. Uh, so that in 581, uh, for not entirely known reasons, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, burnt the major buildings of Jerusalem, including the temple. 
it would appear. Uh, perhaps he had consulted with the uh, uh, ex-Jerusalemites in Babylon who thought the temple was hopelessly corrupt. Who, in these, um, in these events, do you recall, is referred to in the Bible as the servant of God? Daniel. Who? Daniel. Well, now Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> Um, and thus ironically he's, he's referred to as a servant of God and promised further conquests um, as, a, as a result of that status was this the judgment of God um, I just want to put that to you as a, one of those questions which is rather beyond scientific judgment but was it the judgment of God that the first temple should be destroyed but the, the Babylonian captivity did not last very long. And we get from the period of the first temple to the period of the second temple, or the latter house. Uh, people of my age will remember the inspiring sermon preached by Archbishop Ramsey uh, when Coventry Cathedral was rededicated in the 60s after it had, it, had had, it had been burnt down by World War II bombs. And he uh, quoted the text from Haggai about the glory of the latter house being greater than that of the former. Um, and uh, that made an impression on many of us who were, um, who were around at the time. Uh, but it, it is to be noted um, that the biblical text divides at this point into three streams. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah, who refer to the re-foundation of the temple around 520, uh, Ezra, who, whose story is set about 50 years later, and uh, Nehemiah, who is... Uh, they're all very difficult to relate to each other, uh, and so different that I think you, it's very hard to think that anyone really knew what, what had gone on, or, or were effectively recorded what had gone on. And there's no archaeological record to help us at this point. But... I think you could say, that some, plausibly enough, you could say the prophecy was fulfilled, the glory of the later house was greater, because that was, the, uh, that was the nest from which the world-beating Old Testament literature emerged, which has had such an impact on so many people over all the generations since. But it, it, it is fairly clear that the time of the main composition of the Old Testament um, was that time the, the uh, period of the Persian Empire in the um, 500s and 400s. Of course, it continued to be revised later on, but I think the glory of the latter house came from that, um, no, you could say the prophecy was fulfilled in that respect. Um, well, um, another leap. As I say, there's, there's, there's not much... Uh, of a record of what happened, not of any kind, neither literary nor archaeological, about what happened between the, the consecration of the Second Temple and uh, the mid-2nd century BC, the 100s, whereas Finkelstein records that Jerusalem returned to prosperity and full occupation. Uh, this, there had been the famous Jewish revolt, 
which had re-established the kingdom, uh, well, by slow degrees and all sorts of twists and turns. Um, and in 114, there was a big publishing event. I've no reason to think that there really were signposts with uh, all that sort of thing written on them, pointing up the road to, between Jerusalem and Alexandria. But we do know that someone did make that journey with a certain amount of fanfare in that year from, from Jerusalem to Alexandria. And he had with him uh, a new edition of, a, of an Old Testament book, which obviously must have been disturbing its readers uh, for the reason it doesn't mention God, or didn't. Um, what book was that? What book of the Old Testament doesn't mention God? Esther, yes, yes, indeed. And uh, so, what was what was set right in one one four was uh, that a new edition of Esther was, uh, which to we to us is the Greek Esther. It only survives in Greek, um, but I think it's regarded by the Catholics as the book of Esther to this day. Um, and I would think that uh, King John. Of, who was high priest and king of the Jews at that time, would probably personally have signed off on something as important as um, revising a book of the scriptures and putting prayers and references to God into it appropriately, indicating how important the soft power that was bestowed on the rulers of Jerusalem by their magnificent literature which was now being read not only in their own country, or their original own country, but by the very important Jewish community in Babylon, by the very important Greek-speaking Jewish community in Alexandria. Um, and extending wider, it was obviously known by, in many parts of the world, and people all over the world were starting to um, show a degree of conversion from paganism to Judaism, I mean, all over the, the Mediterranean world. So there was soft power, and there was reworking of the scriptural text. I think this is rather an, an interesting one, and it shows how the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were being written, I don't know, um, 100s of the, the, the <coughs> 90s or something of the, of the BC era, uh, this is one place where, where we probably should adopt a Dead Sea Scroll reading of the Bible instead of the traditional Hebrew text. Deuteronomy 32.8. And this is the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, you know, the guiding book of the interpretation of history that, that um, the Old Testament um, puts to us. Deuteronomy 32.8, as we have it, reads, uh, God divided the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. Why should he do that? Um, very funny thing to divide all the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. Uh, what the um, Dead Sea Scroll version here says is according to the number of the children of God. And the, the Greek or Septuagint version says according to the number of angels. So uh, what, what, what was meant, I think, I think this must be the older version of Deuteronomy, the, the original one, it meant that uh, God had given a, a guardian, an angel, or one of his children, uh, to look after each individual nation. Um, this was starting to look a bit suspect by the time 
uh, Deuteronomy was being copied for the main Hebrew text, and the nonsensical children of Israel was put in instead. So, you know, great attention was being paid, not only officially, but all sorts of people were working. The Dead Sea Scrolls people didn't like the king in Jerusalem, but you know, they too were doing it. Great attention was being paid to get to improving, refining, perfecting the scriptural text. Hard power came into it too. Uh, king John's armies destroyed Samaria, a long-standing objective of the rulers of Jerusalem, in 113, the following year. And in 1110, uh, John embarked on a great program of conquest, um, which he doubled the size of his territory, and uh, forced a number of people, including the, um, I don't know if it's going to be poetic justice, but including the family which produced Herod the Great, to convert to Judaism. Um, and uh, John's dynasty, the, who were called the Hasmoneans, continued in power and pomp for a number of years. They had Roman patronage, which did help. Uh, they, they eventually had to give way to their Herodian in-laws who married into them and um, um, in some ways well, achieved even greater success. Oh well, um, it seems I have managed to uh, keep within the hour. Uh, this is the conclusion that I'm, I've come to and been trying to Put to you. So I think, I think we need both uh, devotion, and we talk about devotional use of the Old Testament, which is another very interesting matter. Um, others here will know more about it than I do. Um, but I think both devotional and scientific approaches to the ancient text are needed. I think that what we believe devotionally, we cannot prove scientifically. As I, I, mean, as I say, I, was, I quoted that little snatch of Edmund London's ambiguous and, and in some ways rather charming uh, verse about divine providence somewhere or other in spite of all our disillusion. Is that statement true? I don't think we can prove it or disprove it scientifically. But we need, we need perhaps to you know, be aware when we're talking scientifically and when we're talking devotionally. In the scientific sphere, we should recognise that there are very elusive facts which, which Israelite kings didn't, didn't rule Moab. And there are elusive meanings. What exactly was ancient Israel? Um, as I said, I think there is a battle for ancient Israel going on. Uh, and it could erupt into a real battle with bloodshed, even conceived in World War III. What I would suggest is that we don't want to take sides too easily. I, what I've tried to suggest is that from a scientific point of view, there's an awful lot of interpretation and doubt. And uh, we are very rarely in a position to thump the table and say, this is proved or disproved. <coughs> I've used that phrase before. It's one of the things I, I, you know, I most believe in this context. This is a world of great contention. Uh, in which, um, perhaps in a rather bad way, religion is gaining greater importance and becoming the frame in which conflict is, is expressed. Um, about 20 years ago, I, I was talking to um, s someone who was serving me in a restaurant who came from what was then Yugoslavia, and he said, um, 
no one knew whether they were Serbs or Croats five years ago, but suddenly the question of where your grandmother went to church became the absolutely dominant question and people started killing each other because of it. Um, well, so religion is becoming a very important, perhaps not in a way we would welcome, really, very important um, vehicle for the conflicts of the world. I, I place great faith in, I mean, you may think this is a bit eccentric, but it's, it's um, you may think it's a, well, it doesn't say the faith in a moment. I place great faith in scientific study of the Bible. I think it's one of the very few things that can bring, you know, study in which it is not assumed that our devotional attitudes are correct or even that the Bible is the truth. But it, it, it seems to me a way in which you can bring people of different approaches, even atheists, together um, for a, uh, a discussion of the religious roots of our civilization, which are, of course, terrifically important, um, and affect all sorts of people, even atheists again, who can bring, bring them into a discussion which is not just a question of screaming about how our lot have always been right. And, Finding a way of doing that is really very, very valuable if do as indeed we can. So, um, is the Bible true um, in a devotional sense? Of course, I think it is. I think the idea of divine providence is one we shouldn't do without. And in the scientific sense, I want to say that it's important we discuss it, but very few points can we say that, can we say that we know. I think that there is a certain amount of Christian value in discussing these things in what I've been calling a scientific spirit and being slow to judgment about what the truth actually was. I think being slow to judgment and not being acrimonious is, is a Christian thing. Not an exclusive Christian thing, but, but a Christian thing, surely. And therefore, I think there is a certain amount of, you know, you can pursue the study of the, of the Old Testament and the ancient texts um, in a spirit which is scientific, but while being distinct from our devotional um, approach, still, still, still properly Christian. So, um, that's what I wanted to... Um, put to people. Um, I, put it in, I put Edmund London's verse on the handout. I also put another little verse from Wendy Cope uh, about a lecture, um, which um, I hope is only half true as far as it is. But um, thank you for not interrupting or ignoring me. <laughs> and um, I would be very glad if I can provoke some, have, have provoked some discussion. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Martin. Um, those of you who've been to lectures here before will know that there's only one rule, and that is if you want to ask a question or make a comment, you put your hand up so I can bring you the microphone so that everyone can hear. Um, Martin, in a sense, should we not put this in context in the terms of all historical study, 
Um, and if we were, for instance, looking at what happened in England in the similar period to the period which we're talking about uh, here, sort of 800 and 1000 BC, um, there may be precious little record. I mean, we perhaps have record of the Roman uh, encampments and Caesar's camp not too far from here, but that's actually pretty late on. And the fact that there isn't a lot of evidence about what happened 800 or 1,000 years BC doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't happen, I think. Yes, I, I, well, I can't agree about that. And in particular, I think Bible history is just like all other history. As I will, except I will, other history may not have the same devotional significance for us. But as history, as an object of scientific study, it is, it is always the same. You should think of it as, as you, sh you should think of the problem of, of interpreting events in the Middle East in 1000 BC in the same way as you would think of interpreting events, well, so, well certainly little, very little known times like 500 AD, AD 500 in this country. There's quite a close parallel, I think, between um, the Bible history and uh, the Trojan War, um, in which, other, which also people have invested a great deal of emotion. Um, the, once again, just have just the same pattern, really, of a long story in the Homeric poems and a certain amount of archaeological evidence, which fits in a way and doesn't fit in other ways. Um, you know, it's the same sort of oblique relationship, which perhaps is what we've got to expect when you've got, on the one hand, fragments of a, of a world that existed 3,000 years ago and um, a great poem describing those events. Could I just ask, current archaeology in that area, what is happening now? Is it, has science advanced with X-rays that we are likely to find more evidence which is going to merge the two together? Um, I would think we're likely to find quite a lot more. Um, well, well whether it, whether it would be significant, I don't know. I mean, the Holy Land has been ransacked in a way that far few other places have. And um, to some extent, it's a bit um, um, it's a bit disappointing. Rather, little's been found in comparison to what you might. Have, I mean, I've heard that a, a new Hittite text is discovered. Someone said quite seriously every day. Um, whereas a, a, a new Israelite text certainly isn't. But some things will come up. But I think that when you say what's happening, I mean, in some way, terrible things are happening. Because um, in, I mean, the sequence of events could be described in different ways, but in 03, I think, uh, two, give this answer's going to be a bit long, so you can shout or kick me or something, but um, in 03, I think, two very dodgy artefacts were dug up, one of which was, is the, the alleged tomb, or, or I mean, no, the ossuary box, uh, 
of uh, James, Jesus' brother, um, which was seriously put on, on display in the museum in Canada. Uh, and the other was something called the Jehoash Tablet, which, which descri- alleges, allegedly describes a restoration of the temple in the middle um, era of the kingdom. Both those are regarded as forgeries by the Israeli Antiquities, Antiquities Authority. Uh, and the James Osher is me a scandalous forgery. I don't know why it was familiar taken seriously. But however, uh, the tablets, I think, seriously spooked the Muslim authorities who were in charge of the Temple Mount at the moment. And they have, uh, they claimed that there were reasons for renewing the electricity supply, for heaven's sake, underneath their building. So they pulverised the ground. They don't want anything to be found which can say, uh, I prophesy that the, 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 the Jewish temple must be restored. But it, I mean, obviously, it's a ter- that's an awful lot of destruction has been entailed by that. Uh, meanwhile, um, both for political and for uh, scientific reasons, some people are pressing for genuine excavations to, uh, as Finkelstein, as uh, he's the leading archaeologist in Israel, uh, pressing for. Um, I mean, he may personally be pressing quite quietly, but some people are pressing much more noisily for um, digging to take place on the Temple Mount. Uh, I think the current situation is that one of the access bridges has been declared unsafe, uh, so the Israelis want to do repairs. Oh, well, the dead bodies, it might come to that, of, of the uh, Muslim authorities who just don't want the Israelis to dig. Because like, terrible things are happening, and destruction is going on that will never be will never be repaired. But it is, it, there is a battle for ancient Israel going on in that sense in the most uh, you know, menacing fashion. Martin, can I press you please on um, the interpretation of history and ask you more about your uh, view on providence and divine providence and the view that the exile was God's judgment upon a sinful people? Um, well, I mean, the first point I want to make is that, I mean, not if we dug up a thousand inscriptions and figurines, etc., could we prove that it was or wasn't God's judgment on a, on a sinful people. So, uh, that is not a, a scientific matter. And what, what, I, what I may want to say is that, we, is that we should know when we're talking or thinking scientifically and know when we're talking or <coughs> thinking devotionally. I, don't, I think a person can do both, but not at the same time. Um, and, um, well, I mean, the, the, the questions raised by was divine providence at work are, are, well, they are essentially questions of a wholly different sort. I mean, we, I mean, we perhaps find it difficult to sympathise with the attitude of the Bible that, that any, the only, the only good, the only good religion, as it were, was based on the Jerusalem temple and uh, was a matter of, sacri- only in that temple could sacrifices be made. Perhaps in a sense, only in that temple could prayers be offered. Um, and 
perhaps we we find it rather we we don't sympathise that much with the idea of of um, massacring the priests of Baal and etc. Um, but I mean, I suppose I mean divine providence is something with which we will not will not always be what we would expect it to be or want it to be. I suppose. We, we are getting into other and more um, um, philosophical fields here rather than historical ones. Um, I, I must, I, um, I, I, way back in the 60s, I abandoned my plans to uh, seek ordination because I didn't feel I could, I could um, preach the religion of the Old Testament, which struck me as terrifyingly intolerant. I mean, in a way, I think that judgment was naive now, but I mean, that was, that was, um, that was, that was, what, that was what I thought then. Um, I mean, I think now that it's, that it's, it's a great poem describing questions of, you know, faith, alienation, violence, and, and so on, and to, um, you mustn't just judge it as incitement to this and that deed. Could you speak to the tools and the materials used to record history uh, with regards to the Egyptians' penchant for nailing it to stone or driving it into stone and the fact that we don't have the stones of the prophets, we have the scrolls of the prophets and they were vellum and you know, the, the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls survived because they were stuck in vases in dry climate in caves. And can you speak to something of that uh, with regard to the archaeological? Findings? Well, we do have the um, we do have the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, and on the Egyptian side we have papyrus as well as stone. Um, because we have papyrus, we have some really, really old old versions of the New Testament. Um, well, every civilization of that time put things put things onto stone. <coughs> As well as it could, as well as it could, I think. Um, some quite humble people, presumably it wasn't, wasn't official, uh, wrote that um, inscription about "I bless you in the name of Yahweh and His Asherah." Um, but it was important enough to them to to inscribe it on stone. I mean, I wouldn't have thought there was a major technological difference explaining the um, survival. A cultural difference as to where they record things and how they. And therefore, there perhaps might be a lack of discovery, given the turbulent history. I, I, I mean, I, well, I think there are all sorts of questions about um, where are the royal records of Israel and Judah, say? Were, were they smashed up at some point? I mean, the, the Book of Kings talks as if they were accessible. I mean, was anyone going to consult them? Um, if so, where are they? Um, I, and what, well, okay, what were they written on? I, 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 so I don't myself think that technological factors play an enormous part in explaining what we've got and what we haven't got from different civilizations. Well, I may be wrong about that, but that's, that's my sentiment that, people, that, on the whole, people thought that important things should be inscribed on stone. So, and this is even you know, fair, not people who are all kings and the Siloam inscription, say, which, as again, probably is genuine, 
uh, would, would um, just have been scratched on the wall by workmen or by some literate person whom they brought in to record their, their um, convergence. I think it's far more important that we've got to check that we've got, well, uh, in my school days, um, my school chaplain, who was later my stepfather, said, um, you have to remember that the Old Testament was produced by the Jerusalem University Press. And uh, that is true. Though I mean, the, the question of exactly when the Jerusalem University Press was, was in full swing is, an, is, a, is another matter. But I, I think the important thing is that, that <coughs> we are in the hands, again, as far as we're making scientific judgments, we are in the hands of editors and, well, first writers and then editors of a much later time. We have loads of Hittite inscriptions, say, apparently, um, which no one, no, one could, no one could or would have bothered to revise, but the, the Israelite scriptures are so important that um, they got written and rewritten. And the book of Jeremiah has probably gained twice its length since the original, um, since it was the prophet himself actually thundered on the, uh, the pulpit. Could we come back to Ezra and Nehemiah, which you sort of said you thought were a bit um, incompatible, but uh, I would have thought uh, Ezra built the temp rebuilt the temple, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But there are some arguments as to who did which first, but certainly in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra is brought in as the scribe to read the book of the law to the people. Um, I, I would have thought there was at least some um, agreement between Ezra, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, somebody suggested that there actually were one book. Um, they were worked into one book at one point. I think it's, I think it's generally agreed. Um, why would the Persian king send two emissaries with huge resources to uh, do the same, do no, roughly the same place, roughly the same time? Um, the the, the next generation the, of writers that we have, those who wrote the early bits of the Apocrypha, some of them talk about Ezra and some of them talk about Nehemiah as if you know, they'd only heard of one tradition. Uh, the, the bit of Nehemiah where Ezra appears seems to have been transferred from the original book of Ezra uh, they say this can be shown by the um, appearance of singular verbs at the, um, well, there should be a plural, and um, um, other ways in which it's, um, it looks as if someone has tried to harmonise, uh, presumably someone in, in Egypt, when the, um, so the, the Greek-speaking Jewish, Jewish um, community was trying to make sense of things. It looks as if somebody realised that there were two traditions which were growing up independently of each other and tried to put them together. There's also, there's also something very funny about the relationship between, between Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai Zechariah. Because um, the te uh, Haggai Zechariah has the temple sort of restored and functioning around about 515. Whereas 
Ezra seems to be sent, sent, sent by the Persian king, again with huge resources, um, which is slightly unlikely to, um, to um, start something that's already happened. Now, so I think, I think there are, and the prophecy that the glory of the latter house will be greater isn't known to uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, who are, you know, think that the latter house will never um, achieve the glory of the, of the former. There are, I mean, now, that's, I think that's what I'm persuaded of, but there are all sorts of details, and um, some people have argued that you can fit Nehemiah into the couple of years of Ezra because there was a big event in the form of a revolt of <coughs> Egypt against Persian power, and Nehemiah was essentially um, being sent to um, build up the fortifications on the Egyptian frontier. So, so uh, no, you, you, do, you, know, you mu definitely mustn't take what I say as the last word. But so that, that there are quite, uh, I'm sure you, would, you wouldn't, but uh, there are quite, uh, so we know each other well in this respect, but uh, there are. There are um, I feel fairly persuaded that the, the Ezra and Nehemiah traditions were originally different and not written by people who knew each and who knew the other, and they were harmonised around 300 in Egypt to um, build up support for the Egyptian, even that stage too, there were Egyptian Iraqi wars, and the Egyptian side was trying to um, build up its credibility in, in Palestine. I hate you, answer questions are too great name. Um, can I just ask a question? Have you done much research in, in relation to slightly later history, which actually is more provable, and then reverse engineering it back to Israel? Because I'll give you an example. First, we've got the Dead Street Sea Scrolls, and then you have the um, Al-Hanidi Scrolls, or whatever they're called. But they were fully translated. The Dead Street Scrolls, we still don't have a full translation of those yet. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's still 10 or 15% of those that haven't been done. Um, but the point is that around the time of the temple destroying, there's no reference after that to the Ark of the Covenant. There's a lot of research to say that, that I know the Bible says in Revelations, the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. The point I'm making is that there's a lot of um, history that's been tracked and a lot of evidence to support it leaving at that, around about that time with the priests, with the covenant, going out towards Elephant Island and Egypt, staying there until the evasion um, of the Hiskos, and then going out further to Ethiopia, where there's lots of things that go there. So there's a lot of other ways you could reverse engineer the Bible, I'm sure. I do apologise, I've been, I've been answering questions at too great length. Sorry. Um, but there are many details there that perhaps I haven't got time to address them all. But I, 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 mean, I think you're absolutely right that if you're going to understand the, the Old Testament in its historical context, you do have to work backwards, in a, in a way. To my mind, the central moment is the rededication of the temple in 515 or something, because that was the spur. I mean, forward from that date, you get the great effort of literary composition. Backward from that date, you get the history that was interpreted. So I was, in a way, trying to um, reverse engineer I think not quite from the point that you, you would have chosen, but from the, um, uh, the point where, I th as I said, I think this, this great event in history, in, the, in politi political history and in literary history, 
occurred, i.e. the refoundation of the temple and the literary composition to which it gave rise. Well, I think the, book, the books of kings are quite evident the ones that followed God's rule, they were in power. The ones that didn't, they weren't. And that would be a time where your other Egypt and other people, Syria and the rest of it, moved into Israel. So, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to support the Bible, especially when you've got one translation of the book of Daniel found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and another one identical to that found and translated before that. There's lots of evidence to support that that is accurate. I mean, and, and some of the, the tablets... I, th I think the Egyptians were better at writing things down than we were. I think they brought more of that to us. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think that there's a lot of evidence in the Bible that is actually more provable now by archaeology. I kind of got the feeling that you, you were a bit undecided in that thing. Well, I don't quite agree that there's all that much is provable by archaeology. Um, as I say, I think the relationship of the archaeological record to the biblical record is awkward and requires some interpretation rather than rather, well, you know, we could go through all you know, if you go through it point by point and would, that might take us five years but um, it's you know, I suppose we can't do that can we, so we have, so we have to we have to um, just have all different points of view of that, on that matter uh, Thank you very much Martin for your interesting trails through history but the thing that struck me was how much of the history that we've read in the Bible it, it, it was completely left out um, you know I would think that uh, if Joseph had made the impression on Egypt that he apparently did uh, there would be some sort of evidence or people <coughs> would for it that uh, no mention of the Egyptian slavery or indeed the Babylonian exile very much. Um, uh, Belshazzar's feast might have been uh, <laughs> interesting um, because, you know, it was the hallmark of the Persians taking over. And uh, later on, you know, the Maccabean revolt Surely that's leaving some history behind. It's certainly affected the behaviour of the Jews afterwards. And uh, I'm surprised you didn't mention Alexander the Great because, uh, you know, that, that had a, an effect on the, the later period, the last hundred years, and the division of the uh, Alexandrian Empire between his generals. Um, would you like to comment on the lack of evidence in these areas? You know, is it because we haven't looked hard enough? Or is it because it just isn't there and throws doubt on it? Well, I spent most of the last couple of days taking things out of the talk because I really want to keep within an hour. Um, and I was looking at things where there is some degree, or maybe where there is some degree of archaeological record, but you're absolutely right. Um, that is not the half of it. Um, I, and there are some things which you wouldn't necessarily expect to um, leave a record outside the Bible. I mentioned, I mean, you know, all I can say is, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right, there's an awful lot, awful lot I didn't, didn't cover. Um, may, I think, I think I can say that I covered most of the 
archaeological remains that are much talked about. I'm probably not, but not even that completely. But I, that was where, that was where I selected. Um, without archaeological record, you're left with analysis of the of the text, um, and so you can notice things like the divergence of the text at the point where the second temple is founded. Uh, there's another divergence, of course, where the Israelites conquer Canaan. And you have uh, a story in the book of Joshua which says that they, they captured the whole place in about five years. Um, and I didn't refer to, because um, it's not exactly monuments or inscriptions, but there are great debates about whether ruins, etc., confirm this story. Once again, I think it's a very ambiguous picture, actually. But, of course, you have Joshua saying it all happened quickly, and you have judges saying it took it took a long time. Um, and once again, those are, those are uh, I mean, well, you know, they're clearly two different traditions which have been moulded by the theological points that people at a later time wanted to make. But, you know, it, I think the Holy Spirit works through all sorts of things, through our imperfect memories, our ideas and our theories, all sorts of things. Because the Holy Spirit can only work through us. And we are what we are. Um, one, uh, no, I've got so <laughs> Uh, that, 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 <coughs> time for that would be a very good place to end, but Richard's got a burning question. So. <laughs> um, one, one of those uh, uh, could be Joseph. Uh, David Rowell oh, yeah. um, said he found a twice size, life size statue of Joseph, and he had ginger hair. And I don't know if you have any comments on that. <laughs> um. Well, I do have one of his books. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure I can um, assess the likelihood of, of uh, that story. I mean, he is rather a... I mean, I think the way out writers have that. I have got his book called The Lords of Avarice. Um, and I think here and there, as far as I know, he has some rather good ideas. But um, he is a bit of a way out, I think. Um, but, um, no, but um, I would be quite surprised if you could tell from the statue what the, what the hair colour was. But uh, I suppose henna was used an awful lot, wasn't it, in, uh, in, those, uh, in those days? Just, just one more thing. Um, we, one thing that's always... I don't know what you think about this, but... As to the use of the Old Testament, we of the Old Testament we make in the church, um, there are a couple of hymns which paraphrase Isaiah's temple vision. A couple that I can think of. One is "Bright the vision that delighted once the sight of Judasia," and the other is "Either Lord of sea and sky, etc." And they are both utter travesties. I mean, the, the, he could hardly have been delighted by a vision that said the whole country was going to be ruined. Um, the cities would be left waste without <coughs> inhabitants. Uh, his anger was completely implacable. There was no use trying to um, no, 
maybe he's trying to turn them aside now and tell them to go for destruction. And I can't believe anyone would found that delightful. Um, and the Isle of the Lord of Sea and Sky has God say he's going to help everybody, when of course in the actual mission he says he's going to knock them into the middle of next week and beyond. Um, can we, do we find that in order to use the Old Testament in our church life, we have to rewrite it. Can we not quite take it as it is? Just, I, and I'm not saying that because I, I'm an expert and knows the answer. I'm just saying because I'm a, I'm a member of a congregation where these hymns are sung. I don't know what you, 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 you do, I think. Um, what, what I suggest is it's always good to leave the audience with something to go home with. Um, what we're quite happy to do is we'll take answers on... Um, postcard wouldn't be big enough, would it? So answers on foolscap sheets to, to whatever length you like. But, but I think it's good, it's good to, um, uh, to finish on that point because this talk has been um, full of imponderables and some very deep thinking, Martin, is my view, about the relationship between uh, the artefacts that you've talked to us about and, and what you've described as the devotional aspect of the Old Testament. A devotional aspect which often is difficult for us to get our minds around, I think, and yet which we know for one extremely good reason is essential for us to try and comprehend, and that's because it was the scriptures of Jesus. And uh, much of what he said, much of what he did makes no sense outside um, all that is set out in, in the Old Testament. So, so I don't think we have any choice but to engage with the Old Testament on, on those terms. And nothing that you said was undermining that. Um, for myself, I just found it so interesting that there was, there was so little that either confirmed or undermined um, what perhaps we naively thought of as the history books of the Old Testament, but which probably were not written with that purpose at all, as you suggested, for example, in relation to the rewriting of the book of Esther quite late on. So I'm sure that we'll all go away with plenty to uh, think about, and thank you very much for um, grappling with the technology so successfully and for, <laughs> and for giving us su such an interesting um, final Tuesday lecture this year. Thank you very much. So thank you. If people wanted to read a comparatively accessible book about this, I think the, the Oxford History of the Biblical World is as mentioned. Um, could I, before we, before we go home, could I just um, mention a couple of other things? This is the last of the Tuesday lectures. As many of you know, there is going to be uh, a final lecture this Friday, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, throughout, throughout the time, these five weeks of these lectures, uh, people have been arriving early to set the hall up. Richard has been here almost every week, um, except when ill, to set up the screen and the technical equipment. People have come to make coffee and tea beforehand. And I think it would be nice if we could thank all those who contributed to our relaxation and enjoyment of the evening. So to all those who've been involved. And I thought it would be nice if we, if we finish this um, 
last of the, of the regular lectures um, with, with prayer. And I'll just say a prayer which, which reminds us a little bit about what the Old Testament is for us as followers of Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word, the Bible. We thank you for the New Testament which tells us about Jesus. And as we approach Holy Week and Easter, tells us about that time when he laid down his life for us. We thank you too for the Old Testament, for the Old Testament which contains such riches of a people's perception of their place in your covenant world, their relationship with you, and from which there is so much for us to learn. Help us to take all of the Bible seriously and to use it in our own lives to inform our faith and the way that we live as followers of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much.